Welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining me. My guest today on August 1st will celebrate 25 years in the Academy. He is a fantastic writer. He is a friend to a lot of folks. He is a past editor of Koyania, which is the um, publication for Association of Christians in Student Development. His name is Dr. Michael Hayes, but many of us around this campus at Lee University call him Mike. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We'll be right back. back. Mike, welcome to Surfcast. This is your third or fourth time. I don't know. Yeah, third or fourth. Uh, I can't keep track, but thanks for having me back. I guess it's going okay. <laughs> yeah, every time, man. We're delighted. So a little news for the folks who are listening to us today. You and I have a 15-year uh, friendship. Well, we have a 17-year friendship, I guess, but 15 years of that, I've worked directly with you in student development. And I think July 1st, the Leonard Center is going to be shifting at Lee University over to the School of Religion. I'll be working directly with Dr. Terry Cross. You got any comments on that? No, I think it's been a good, productive partnership. Your sentence is over, so uh, <laughs> you can fly and be free. But seriously, it's been uh, rather productive and been inspirational over the past 15 years. Yeah. Well, by no means are we going to part our ways, but this is actually an opportunity for us to have a conversation about some of the things that people who know you, they, they understand this, but people who don't know you, don't really understand some of the things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about personal development, talk about a little bit about your personal life, and a little bit about your role in the academy. So August 1st, 25 years working in higher education. That's hard to believe. A quarter of a century. That's that makes a lot, me, man. That makes me feel old. I'm a whole lot closer to being visited at Deke Day <laughs> than visiting at Deke Day, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> That'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. So all 25 years here at Lee University, or have you worked at other places? 25 years here at Lee. So take us from the beginning to now. We know now that you're the vice president for student development, but what are some of the roles that you've held at Lee University over the years? Yeah, in uh, 95, I came as a counselor in our Office of Counseling and Testing at that time. I came from the local mental health center. I spent a couple of years there, and then I moved into uh, the director of student events role. And we actually morphed that uh, office to the Office of Student Development after uh, my serving in that capacity for a year. And then we shifted, and uh, I got a little more involved in things like the Leonard Center, and then also uh, the opportunity to become the Assistant Vice President for Student Life, which um, uh, I maintained a lot of my same portfolio. But uh, then about 10 years ago or so, I became the Vice President for Student Development. So it's been a great journey. One of the things that Lee um, champions is the whole idea that the uh, directors and vice presidents most of them, I think, all teach as well. So you're um, you're ranked in, in the College of Education, is that correct? Mm-hmm. So what do you teach? Um, there's a couple of courses I know that you do, but for our listeners' benefits, what are some of the things that you've taught over the years, and how do they um, impact your work on a day-to-day basis? Uh, I've been blessed to be able to teach uh, Gateway, our freshman orientation course now, every fall that I've been here. So that's been an absolutely re- uh, rewarding experience for me both personally and professionally. I've also been able to teach a lot of psychology courses. So right now I'm teaching abnormal psychology uh, to take a look at mental health issues. I get to teach on the graduate level as well, uh, mostly a college student development uh, theories course. And then the other course that I've taught consistently for over 20 years is our undergraduate course in student leadership development. So I've been blessed to be able to uh, teach a lot of different kinds of courses and uh, love them all. 
you know, you're, I mentioned in the, um, in the introduction that you served at one point as an editor of the magazine Koinea, which is the official publication for Association of Christians and Student Development. Tell us a little bit about that, because while 25 years you've been at Lee, you've also been a strong voice in higher education, especially in the Christian um, university um, area. Talk to us a little bit about that. That was a really rewarding experience for me because it was um, an opportunity to bring together a lot of different voices across the field, uh, literally uh, from around the world. Uh, so getting to uh, summarize research with uh, world-class researchers who were uh, going to be presenting it at the annual conference for ACSD, but then also uh, being able to work on the executive committee with that group and to chart the, the course forward for the organization that was really something that, again, was rewarding for me, both personally and professionally. But it uh, helped us, uh, and, and me specifically, uh, kind of keep our fingers on the pulse of what's happening in higher education, particularly uh, from a Christian perspective. So we know that, you know, um, universities and colleges all have a little bit of a competitive edge with it because we're all competing for students. Now, sometimes we're competing from the same pot, but as a general rule, you know, um, everybody wants more bodies on campus so we can do well. What are some of the ways that you've seen, especially those um, Christian institutions, work together in a cohesive uh, development for students, even though they might not be going to our particular school, they might be going somewhere else? Uh, I think that uh, that was one of the big benefits of being in that position in ACSD and having maintained membership in ACSD, I think, was really critical. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, interconnectedness among the various professionals in the association. Uh, and as many people uh, in the industry know, there are a lot of listservs with uh, various affinity groups or various working groups. So for instance, uh, I get uh, listserv announcements virtually every day from all the chief student development officers from around the country. Those are always helpful, but I think also just uh, uh, annual conferences and other opportunities like that, but also publications. Uh, and then of course, websites. Uh, those things are always really helpful uh, in terms of staying on top of things. So if you're listening to this episode today, I want you to encourage Mike to uh, write his book. I've been after Mike for years to try to get him to uh, to write a book. Any more thoughts on that, Mike? Have you thought any more about that? Uh, this is actually one of those times uh, uh, in terms of responding to this COVID-19 crisis to where uh, your time gets um, restructured in a way. It's not that you're necessarily less busy. You're just busy with different things and different approaches. But it has given me some time to uh, really reflect on what I might like to write about and how I might piece that together. So it's definitely uh, one of those things that uh, I'd like to carve out some time for really soon. Good deal. Well, I want to at least read a page or two of it for sure. Thanks. So, Mike, you're nearing 25 years, a quarter of a century, as you mentioned a while ago. Um, there's more students on our campus than there were 25 years ago. There's probably more students in the schools that are still existing um, than there were years ago. What are some of the changes, um, some of the main pendulum swings that you have seen in higher education that probably we need to be aware of today? And how have those, we're going to talk about the pandemic in just a little bit, but leading up to that, what are some changes that you've seen in the industry that, that probably we need to be aware of? Uh, the biggest change in the industry is uh, a change that has obviously had massive impacts in the more global society, and that is the impact of technology. I remember when I first came to Lee that there was uh, a lot of um, dialogue about whether or not we should uh, all get an email address, and there was some concern <laughs> among the folks here. That, That's funny. Yeah, who felt that uh, it might uh, promote 
an interpersonal approach to our work. Wow. Uh, you know, folks are like, hey, you know, it's a whole lot nicer to just pick up the phone and talk to somebody or walk down to their office. And I remember those conversations and I was like, oh my goodness, you know, these people are going to have a hard time adjusting to a new environment. I don't think there's any way that we can actually gauge the profound impact of the technological changes uh, in our society and uh, specifically in terms of uh, life in the academy. Even for uh, colleges like, like Lee, who are still largely residential-based, uh, the impact of technology uh, is seismic for us. My son, one of my sons, I think it was Nicholas and I were talking the other day about how these church youth groups, now you used to be a youth pastor and mm-hmm. I used to be a youth pastor, how these church youth groups are trying to um, connect with their students, you know. And he said, Dad, what was your social media reach back in the day? And I, <laughs> I said, well, son, I wore a pager. And he was like, okay, what'd you do with that? And I said, well, actually, I had codes. I had a code for every kid in my group that was a number, and I had a code for whether or not they wanted me to pray for them for a test or whatever. So they would, you know, get a push-button phone somewhere. They would dial my pager, and they would put their code in. And I had this little card in my wallet, and I would look in my wallet, and I would see, okay, this is uh, Mike, you know, number seven. And then I would find which one of these prayer requests he wanted me to pray about. So, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're still alive after such a drastic change in the world, huh? See, but your level of technology as a youth pastor is much more advanced than mine was. <laughs> mine was uh, actually uh, consistent of uh, two soup cans and a string, I think. Nice. So. <laughs> nice. All right, Mike. So you mentioned a while ago COVID-19. I mean, this has impacted the world, every you know, every part of the world, I think. Um, what, what would you say, how has this, this pandemic changed the landscape of higher education? And what do we need to be aware of? Uh, Obviously, with the mass exodus of students and uh, employees uh, from most university campuses around the country and many around the world, uh, I think there is obviously a great deal of individual and institutional fear. Uh, I think a lot of schools are really concerned about uh, sustainability, and rightfully so. Uh, And that loops back to uh, what we just talked about, about the impact of technology. So again, 25 years ago, uh, we didn't have a lot of people with cell phones. Uh, people didn't even know what a text was. Uh, Instagram, the idea wasn't even birthed yet. So I think we're uh, talking about uh, even more seismic changes where uh, the advent of technology and its continual impact have created some really serious, again, seismic shocks for us. I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to understand the long-term impacts of this COVID-19 invasion and infection in terms of uh, higher education. And again, I think right now people are, are, are just responding in fear because they can't control it. Right. And, and they also can't chart the, for, uh, uh, the course forward uh, because it's one of those uh, emergencies and crises that continues to unfold. So, so in, in, in light of that, right, what are some lessons that you – want to point out, you know, both for those who work in the academy and perhaps for students, you know, as well, that we have already learned from the last few months that we've been involved in this. I think yesterday was day 40 or something, you know, since this um, was um, made known in the U.S., right? Um, what are some, some things we need to learn and we need to make some applications now so that we can navigate, even if it looks like it's going to be a downturn, even if it looks like it's going to get better, what do we need to take and apply? Uh, let me preface what I'm about to say with, with a little metaphor, and it's something I think people can, can identify with. 
So we've all heard this expression, trying to nail jello to a wall. Yeah. So I think uh, my best response today is going to be adaptive. It's going to have to be adaptive as we move forward. But, but the way I look at it is it's even a little more complex than nailing jello to a wall. It's like trying to nail jello to a moving wall <laughs> because the situation is in flux. Our approach to the situation is in flux. So, uh, wow, it, it's just a really intriguing time. Uh, we are definitely living in a time of uh, permanent whitewater. Uh, I don't think there's a way for us to, quote, get on the other side of this, unquote, very quickly. Because, again, it's, it's a perpetual crisis at this point. Whereas, for instance, when you look at other major crises that we've had to deal with in the academy, uh, most of those things are pretty self-contained. Crisis happens, you respond. This is crisis happening, dot, 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 response, dot, dot, dot. So I think uh, my, my best responses uh, have to be couched in that perspective. So for a, for a Christian at an institution like this, or even at a secular institution, I think the core thing that we have to do is stay committed to what's steady, and that is our faith. That is our faith community. And to me, it's an invitation to get to know Christ better. You know, it says the Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then a lot of us like to stop there, but he continues on and says, and in the fellowship of his suffering. And I think that that's where we have to take this individually and, and, and as a community. Other things that we have to uh, keep in mind is that it can't be business as usual. Uh, the academy, uh, higher education as an industry is very slow to change. It changes at a glacial pace but I think we're going to have to be much more adaptive. So, so in light of that, and one of the, I guess, you know, student development here at Lee University and a mantra for you has been students matter. Mm-hmm. Obviously also that you matter, meaning mm-hmm. that, that everyone at the table matters, whether you're a student, whether you're a staff member or a professor, vice president, president, doesn't matter. We all matter. Um, in light of that, what are some innovative ways that you have seen um, that we have taken this reality that students matter to a much more personal approach so that we don't lose that relationship that we already have with students, you know, to let them know that even though we can't see them face-to-face, what are some of the innovative ways that you've seen this happen and maybe things that you have chosen to do yourself to right. model this? Right. I think uh, the core principle there is to have those durable core values but elastic strategies. So for me, it's always about helping students and everybody else know they matter Now, how we go about doing that, uh, we're actually being forced to change that. So instead of doing it in a physical classroom or sitting in an office or having a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, um, that's changed. So I think picking up the phone and texting or calling a student, having a Zoom conversation with a student. However, uh, also uh, not just having those conversations, but building new systems. So for instance, what the Leonard Center has done over the past month and a half or so is trying to facilitate... Um, service from our students in a meaningful way to help them continue to help people in the community know they matter. So, for instance, you know, our students are involved in in sewing masks right Mm -hmm. now. You know, a month and a half ago, we'd have been like, okay, well, what are you sewing masks for? And now, what a critical need and what a critical meeting of the need. So I think that that's really powerful. And I think, again, it's just a constant reminder to show up and to not so much worry about how to do it, but to just show up and to reach out to people so you can convey to them that they do matter. Mm-hmm. 
So let's let's hope and let's dream and let's think for a minute that in fall of 2020, um, residential life on campuses across the globe or across the U.S. in particular are going to be intact again, right? What what should we be aware as we approach that? Um, I don't know if you're a prophet or not. I guess you have been acting like a prophet in some time <laughs> in your life. But what should we what should we do to make sure that that we serve students well in that in that um, return to campus mode? Uh, I think we've got to make sure we empathize with them. I think it starts there, and not just with them, but their parents. Uh, I think one of the critical things is that we're going to have to keep in mind the concerns that they have. So, hey, let's let's acknowledge their 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 fears and let's be honest about that because I think all of us have fears at this time. You know, will I get the virus? Have I had the virus? And I and I didn't know it. Am I spreading the virus? So, I think we're going to have to be honest about fears. Uh, because it's just a core human response when we can't control what we've historically controlled. So our health, our rhythms, our schedules, we just can't control those things right now. So, so I think uh, even, even hearkening back to some of what you've talked about, uh, even in your TED Talk, this idea of chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, we might experience it as chaos, but, you know, newsflash, God does not know chaos. Hmm. So even though we feel like it's chaotic, it's, it's not really chaotic in the grand scheme of things. So I think that goes back to really being anchored in our personal relationship with Christ and also as a community. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, we've got to be responsive to concerns with, with students and families. And we're also going to have to be, again, very adaptive. So for instance, you know, if you read anything in higher education today, it's talking about, uh, can we have football in the fall? Mm-hmm. Uh, can we actually... Uh, put people in dorm rooms the way that we've always put people in uh, in the dorms. You know, what about uh, dining facilities? You know, and obviously for a campus like Lee, what about classroom density? What about chapel? You know, what about yeah. chapel density? You know, in every church in the country and in, in, in most churches around the world are concerned about, okay, how quickly can we get back to normal? Well, uh, normal, man, who knows what, what that's going to be. I mean, we talk about a new normal, but again, the unfolding nature of this crisis is we want to get back to a new normal, but we can't right now because mm-hmm. we just don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think as an institution and as a leader in higher education, we have to keep in mind the critical aspect of being adaptive because you know there's new information coming out every day. Now, we can't trust that information all the time, I think one of the general ideas about responding to a crisis uh, that I heard is that 80% of the information you hear after a crisis uh, in the first day is wrong, and then maybe 50% in the second day after the crisis. Mm. So if this crisis continues to unfold, we've got to sort through the veracity of data and make informed decisions. So again, um, when, when we hopefully open as a campus in about four months, I think we're going to look back and laugh at ourselves. Mm-hmm. To, to a certain degree, the things that we believed, but we were believing the best information possible that day. So adaptivity is by far the most critical piece. But again, we've always got to remember empathically what our students and families are going through. And let me add to what our staff is feeling. Mm-hmm. So obviously, uh, people who, for instance, live in dorms, people who are maybe advanced in age or have other risk factors, uh, I think we've got to be empathic toward mm-hmm. folks. 
we've we're in the process. Actually, I think we just finished it in the Leonard Center. Now here at Lee University, we have the benefit of what we call service clubs. And mm-hmm. service clubs are organizations that go out and provide actually hands-on service. And we've just finished up uh, an, a, a year in review with the leaders of those various clubs. And one of the themes that keeps emerging is the idea of um, volunteers. You know, so for example, Lee Day, we had to go virtual this year, right? So we didn't have an on-campus Lee Day. Now we've gleaned volunteers for many years from an on-campus experience. Um, and so I told all of these guys, you know, in the first couple of weeks, I think we're going to be a little bit in culture shock when we come back on campus and it might look a little different. So, you know, you might not get the quick response from volunteers. You just gave us some really good advice on how we should approach this being adaptive for our students as staff and faculty. What advice do you give students now on how they need to approach this possible return to campus? Uh, I think one of the things that is difficult for many of us to understand, but particularly uh, folks who are relatively younger and healthier, uh, I think that they've got to be mindful that perhaps being cautious for others may be a core Christian commitment as we move forward. So, for instance, you know, hey, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go hang out at City Cafe at 3 a.m. And then, you know, I might go back home where there may be someone who could be easily compromised with this virus. I think we're probably going to have to be mindful and, again, empathic uh, in those moments and be really, um, really in tune with how we may actually be carriers of this thing and not not even know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think some of the more interesting things that have emerged in the last few days are uh, the numbers of people who have the uh, antibodies. Mm -hmm. And, again, they, they had no idea. So I think we've got to be mindful of that. But I also think with students, uh, acknowledge the fears. Don't, don't, don't deny the fears. But also simultaneously, don't allow yourself to be controlled by those fears. So w- one of the metaphors that I like to use oftentimes is that uh, a lot of people, like let's assume that we're standing on, on a beach and we're standing there where the ocean is and, um, and we see uh, a sizable wave coming. Well, I think a lot of people would be, uh, oh my gosh, that wave's coming, we got to run. Well, for me, I think metaphorically, I think this is an opportunity for those of us who, who, who are willing and able to grab our surfboards Mm -hmm. and, and, and go take advantage of the wave because the wave's coming. And again, we cannot deny that the wave is coming and the wave will keep coming. So the question is, is do we run in fear? Do we try to bury our heads in the sand? Or do we actually try to take advantage of this disruptive change and actually create, catch this, not just a new normal, but a better normal? Mm, yeah. And I really want to call our students to a level of moral leadership um, than perhaps they're used to. I think that they can be a generation that creates a better normal. And I think that that would be so expressive of the values of the kingdom of God. One of the things that I've learned to say in the last few months or maybe even probably a year now is time will tell. Mm -hmm. So I think that's fantastic advice, both on the um, employees of the academy as well as the students of the academy. So let's make a shift now. We've been talking about your occupational views. Let's talk a little bit more about your personal views. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how do you personally approach this idea of leadership development? Uh, To me, it's largely informed by the ideas of discipleship. I uh, uh, for, for over 30 years, I've tried to separate what I think discipleship and leadership development are, and uh, I can't separate them. Uh, in fact, the more I've tried to separate them, the more I'm convinced 
that there is massive overlap, particularly from a Christian perspective. So for me, I have to look at the life and, 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 and values of, of Jesus. You know, I have to look at the idea of servant leadership, not through a secular lens, but through a Christocentric lens. Uh, but also, I'm heavily informed by research and literature. And I think the most influential aspect of the literature for me uh, has been the model for leader or leadership development from the Center for Creative Leadership, where they say for uh, leadership to development, you have to have three components, assessment, challenge, and support. So they're all like three ingredients in a cake that you're trying to make. You pull one of those out, you don't have a very good cake. So you have to have these balances of assessment, challenge, and support, but that's only part of it. All of those experiences then have to be coupled with the person's ability to learn, but also uh, those things are cast against the backdrop of the organization's culture. So you have to take a look at how all these things interplay. But I think, again, my, my approach to leadership has been informed most significantly by that model. So again, you cannot experience leadership development without assessment, challenge, and support. That's what creates a developmental experience. You have to have a variety of developmental experiences, again, coupled with the individual's ability to learn. Mm -hmm. While my ninth grade um, English teacher would like to get the credit for my desire to read, I think I have to give it to you <laughs> because I've worked with you for 15 years directly and have um, gained a new appreciation, you know, for reading and reading a variety of streams. Mm -hmm. So I know some of the personal ways in which you challenge those on your team towards personal leadership development, but could you just mention a few others of ways and, and why did you choose these, these models? I mean, it could be the book studies that we do. I don't know. There's a ton of things that you do. Why did you choose those and how do you challenge your team to um, be better personally in their own leadership development? Uh, I think uh, what I just said about a variety of developmental experiences is pretty critical. Uh, so if I had my way, I'd do a book study every week. But I also know that that's it's not It's because the you read a book every week, Mike. <laughs> not everybody reads a book every week. But, but, well, and I understand that that's not everybody's preferred modality of learning and development. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage reflection and discussions. I'm also a big fan of mentoring. I don't think you have to have some kind of set-down official mentoring contract kind of relationship to mentor. To me, mentoring basically comes down to Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And I think that there's an invitation to co-mentoring, mm -hmm. co-sharpening. So for me, you know, even earlier uh, this past week, you texted me about a book. Hey, have you heard about this? I'm like, yeah, you know, I've heard about it. But over the years, you've actually suggested books or actually given me books to help me. So so I think we've got to keep in mind that even though we might think of leadership development as a one-way street, it's always reciprocal, or at least it should be in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I think reading, uh, the opportunity to even watch film or TED Talks and respond to those things, maybe a television show, God forbid, that we would sit down and, and take in and actually critically reflect on. So I think a variety of things, even music. I mean, sitting down and watching a music video or listening to a song. So I think that there are plenty of opportunities to, for us to take advantage of nearly everything. I think for me, uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, we've learned to not critically engage things. And I think everything out there is begging to be critically engaged, particularly with the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. let's, let's unpack the mentoring idea for just a minute because one of your past colleagues, um, Cliff Schimmels, and one of my mentors, Cliff Schimmels, 
um, often talked about to me when he and I would would spend some time together. He talked about this whole idea of how that, you know, you're investing in someone else's life and it's also reciprocal. Mm. Now, you are younger than I am um, in the natural age sense of life, um, but way smarter than I could ever hope to be. So my point is, I look at you as a mentor in many ways, even though that you're even though you're younger than me. How, how can you help us better understand the idea? Does age really matter in mentoring? Um, does it have to be? you know, one person who is superior over the other? What does that look like? I know you talked about co-mentoring, but what are some practical ways that we can really say, today I'm going to begin to become a mentor, but I'm also going to be willing to learn from someone else who can be a mentor for me? Oh, I love this. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for us to debunk some myths. So mentors don't have to be older than us. Uh, In fact, mentors don't have to be old. So let me actually speak to the college students who are listening. Uh, what we know from decades of research is that the single most potent influence on the outcome of a college student is the peer group. So peer mentoring is critical. So age, and let me go ahead and throw this in there too, gender. So some of the best mentors I've had, again, it may not have been a set down relationship, but critical female voices who have spoken into my life. For instance, my wife, marriage. Marriage should be about mentoring. So I think one of the critical things that we're kind of assuming that I need to make sure that we make a parent is, Humility in a relationship is much more important than age, gender, or any of the other things that we've made a big to-do about in our culture. Uh, You know, like for instance, uh, do I have to have a mentor who has experience in a thing that I want to experience? And well, maybe so, you know, if it's more of a career-minded mentoring relationship, but it doesn't have to be that way. And again, I cannot stress enough that it's not a one-way street. And what that calls for, though, is it calls for humility with everybody. So the idea that uh, you can learn from me and I can learn from you, some of the most significant mentoring moments in my professional development have come from, catch this, students. Mm -hmm. Students teaching me. So I really want to encourage students to use their voices to help everybody. You know, Mm -hmm. so there aren't people that you can exclude in terms of potential influence because you have influence influence all day long. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, Mike. Let's go a little bit more personal. Uh, we have a few minutes left on this episode. Let's dig in just a little bit deeper. Where do you get your strength from? Uh, you know, I know it's going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but it definitely comes from the Lord. Uh, the The sustaining power of the Holy Spirit is something that I depend on. Uh, I also do get it from from my marriage, from my wife. She's been a fantastic partner now for uh, almost 32 years. She'll get the crown of long-suffering in heaven but uh, that is that is such a critical source of strength for me. Uh, and then also, uh, I get my uh, strength from just seeing people grow. Uh, and when I say grow, it's not linear. It's not always upward. But when I s- see people struggle through the everyday game and just grind it out and see how they grow, uh, man, that's, the, that is fuel to my fire all day long. So aside from reading a book a week, aside from walking three-something miles a day, um, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, you know, I do love to read. I do love to exercise. Um, I, I love sports and mostly uh, football. I'm, I'm a football junkie. So I'm kind of going through a little bit of withdrawal right now, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> there, are, there, there are many, many more important aspects. Um, to life right now, particularly. 
but uh, I'm, I'm also intrigued by just ideas. Mm-hmm. So being able to take a look at something. So instead of maybe just sitting down and watching a show or listening to a song, it's really taking time to critically reflect in, in solitude uh, or at least in small groups with people who are willing to uh, kind of go deep with me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's pretty critical. Also, I have to say that I, that I legitimately love uh, the idea of service mm-hmm. and the hands-on opportunities to really uh, work alongside people. Uh, and again, going back to mentoring, service is never one of those one-way streets. As you full well know, you know, oftentimes you set out to serve people and you grow mm-hmm. uh, yourself um, in terms of that critical human interaction. So um, that's really the core of it. This time last year, we were in Nashville for the Q Ideas Conference, and which also happened to be the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, the virtual draft was last night. Did you watch it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Tua went to Miami. What about that? Yeah, well, you know, Tua played for Alabama, so I could care less. <laughs> Travis Johnson, if you're listening to this, it's um, okay. So, yeah. uh, uh, Roll Tide. Unreal. So, so what do you think about the virtual draft versus the actual in-person draft? Uh, you know, obviously, they had to adapt. Yeah. And I think they adapted well. Uh, it was really interesting to uh, read some of the responses from people about how kind of clunky it felt. Yeah. But I'm like, you know, it, it can't not feel clunky. You know, I mean, this is the first time they've done it. Obviously, they've done several rehearsals and dry runs. But, you know, I think they did a good job of keeping it human. In fact, I actually think one of the coolest things was having cameras in these people's living rooms and yeah. seeing seeing how they live and seeing how their families respond to this life trajectory changing moment for their sons and everybody else involved in their lives. It's just, uh, it's really cool. And actually to see a lot of kids around the coaches and general managers, I think it's just fantastic. I love the one guy where his dad fell on the floor yeah. because it was, it was such a moment for them. They have been through such a struggle and to realize this dream coming true. I thought in some ways it was much more inspirational than the stage thing mm. that we see every year. I think it put put our eyes on the right moments of the show better. Well, you know? and it also put our moments on the humanity of it. Yeah. So they couldn't rely on the sizzle of production. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they had some of that stuff, but um, they were beholden to the human response in that moment with those families, and I I absolutely love that. I thought it was uh, actually um, something that reflected the depth of our humanity a little bit better than. Hey, come out here on the stage, put this hat on and your fancy new suit. You're back here in this artificial room waiting for your name to be called. No, you're sitting there in your living room and there's, there's your mom, there, there's your dad or one or the other, you know, some other mentors or siblings, girlfriend, other friends. Man, I mean, those people invited us into their homes and yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. So for those of you who may have just caught what we did, we just spent about a minute and a half on what Mike talks about as this reflection moment, you mm-hmm. know, and we can learn through all of those. You bet. Just three quick questions, one-liners for fun. Out of all the books you've ever read, all-time favorite? Not the Bible. Now, we know the Bible's your all-time favorite. We know the 66 books in the Bible are your all-time favorite. But let's talk about another stream. What's your favorite book all-time? Uh, it's it's a hard call, but it has to be To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Why? Oh man, uh, it is it is so chock full of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, calls to live righteously with justice, uh, also dealing with significant issues of uh, prejudice, uh, also classism, but also things like uh, uh, murder, 
uh, rape. I mean, Harper Lee didn't pull any punches. Yeah. And of course, I love this family dynamic with Atticus Finch, Scout and Jim, and then of course, Tom Robinson and Boo Radley and all the other people in the community. Uh, the story is so inspirational and reflective of the things that we as a society still struggle with. At this point, what is the uh, single book that you would recommend for employees of the academy, wherever they may be? Uh, it's not an academy book. Um, you know, you, you, you shot me this question a while back, and I've got to settle on Just Mercy. Love um, it. Because it actually talks about how life in the academy can be used to transform society. So Brian Stevenson graduated from um, a sister institution, another Council for Christian Colleges and Universities institution up around Philadelphia, and then he goes to Harvard Law School. Uh, I think it's instructive for where we want our students to be in a society where we've got to represent Christ well. Mm-hmm. Most uh, college syllabi will have an additional reading material on it, and those could be anywhere from 10 to 12 to 30 to 50 you know, um, different books that we recommend students read. What's your single at this time, single most important book that you recommend students, regardless of their major, need to put their eyes on between now and returning to the college campuses in the fall? Just Mercy. Same thing. It is. Uh, I think that book speaks into the depths of humanity. Now, let, let me hasten to add, you can watch the film. The film's pretty good, but the book, I think, is geometrically better. Uh, there are some aspects of the book that I think were so difficult to try to create in the film, they just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, uh, at the end of the book is uh, something that uh, Brian Stevenson talks about that they did not even try to recreate in the, in the film. And it's just a deeply moving moment. So uh, it's worth the end. No spoiler alert. Thank it, you very it, much. Exactly. You bet. No way. <laughs> Final thoughts, Mike, on this particular episode. What you got? Uh, I just want to invite people into this thought that we can't lose our core commitments. And one of the core ideas that the Lord has uh, uh, impressed upon me over the years is that uh, every human interaction is an encounter with the image of God. And right now we can't forget that because we, in times of crisis, engage in a lot of self-preservation it's really easy for us to be so self-protective that we forget about the image of God in other people. Now, all the while, we've got to protect the image of God in us in a way, but I think we've got to keep that in mind. And I think that calls for us to uh, truly be uh, Christ's hands and feet to a society that's really hurting and, again, having a difficult time with fear. Mm-hmm. For most writers, the title comes last on a book, but let me go ahead and give you the title of your book. I was sitting here thinking as you were talking Let's title it A Discipled Leader. It's definitely a possibility. Give me credit when you do it, okay, Mike? A big footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, thanks for joining us today on ServeCast. What's a way that someone can get a hold of you if they desire to have more conversation with you or learn more about some of the things that you've talked about today? You got an email or some way they can reach you? Sure, an email, mhays at leeuniversity.edu would be great. Good deal. Hey, guys, as always on ServeCast, I want to remind you that you're made for more. I'm not sure what's going on in your world or in the world around you, but I am confident if you will apply yourself as a contribution in the chaos, I believe that you can make an impact that will have lasting, lasting change in someone else's world. Until next time, thank you for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.